historical background, if you will, of the Apostle Paul's connection with the, uh, the church at Thessalonica. After Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days argued with them from the scriptures explaining and providing that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous and with some help of the ruffians in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has entertained them as guests. They're all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. The people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this, and after they'd taken bail from Jason and the others, they let them go. Now, just before we continue, to point out a couple of things. The time frame that we're given here, we know this is the, the second missionary journey. And we know that Paul was in Thessalonica for at least two to three weeks because we're explicitly told he was there for three Sabbath days reasoning with the Jews. It would seem likely that he was there for a bit longer than that, but it may be... In fact, it seems most likely that his, that his time in Thessalonica was, was not, not more than several months, a relatively short period of time. We know in, in the context of the, the second missionary journey that on this occasion Paul spent a year and a half of what was not much more than a couple of years in, in the total of the journey uh, at, um, uh, at Corinth. And so it can't have been too lengthier period of time he was in Thessalonica. Now this is, this is extraordinary when we go on as we will this morning to, to explore Paul's relationship with the church at Thessalonica. Um, it's interesting that, uh, in, that what caused most of the problem it seems, it certainly led to uh, Paul and Silas being kicked out of town as it were, was the jealousy of the Jews. Paul brought the gospel, remember, first to the Jews reasoning with them in the synagogues. And then when they reject the gospel, Paul goes to the Gentiles and enjoys, it seems, some success in converting some of the Gentiles. And we're told in response to this, the reaction of the Jews was they were jealous. It made them angry that Paul with the gospel was enjoying success in converting the Gentiles. And I don't think it's that that we should be converting the Gentiles to Judaism. I think it was that the the Gentiles are not worthy of God. Why Why are you, Paul, telling them that they're acceptable to God? I want to suggest to you that it's that animosity, that bias, that prejudice that was, that was eating at the Jews and it so ate at them that it motivated them to, to, to the point of hatred to chase Paul and Silas out of town. The idea that God would accept the Gentiles was intolerable to them and the idea must be stamped out. Notice too, uh, towards the end of that text there, 
the, uh, the idea of being uh, uh, Jason and the others, we don't know much about Jason except he did host Paul and Silas, obviously uh, it's a Greek name so presumably he was a, a Gentile who had uh, embraced the gospel and was hospitable to Paul and Silas which made him uh, an object of the attack of the Jews. Notice that Jason and others had to pay bail. They had to put up money to effectively buy the freedom or avoid prison, if you will, for Paul and Silas. And and that's interesting because as we move through Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and remember on a time frame, and this is the strange thing, the extraordinary thing, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica twice within the space probably of not much more than six months of having been with them. So when we read this background, this is very fresh in the experience, not just of Paul and Silas, but also of the church at Thessalonica. Very fresh in their memories, very fresh in their experience. Jason, for example, can probably still remember the the physical sensation of, of anger and humiliation just because he'd been hospitable to these men he was made an example of and his community hated him as a result of that. That sort of experience does not leave a person quickly. It does not leave a church quickly. Um, It's interesting that Paul in Thessalonians, we won't explore it today, but in future weeks, he makes a point of saying that when we were among you, we weren't a burden on you. And maybe, maybe this reflects back to this idea of Jason and the likes having to pay money to buy their freedom. Paul, Paul and Silas were not wealthy people. In fact, you get the sense that Paul would pretty much live week to week. Very often, more often than not, it seems, having to uh, make his own income through his trade of tent making. He was not in a position to readily come up with cash to buy his way out of trouble which in a sense might might even be contrived as as, as a bribe to the corrupt officials to let him off the hook. Jason, it cost Jason much money to, to release Paul and Silas, to buy their freedom. And so Paul comes back and says, it lays the emphasis, this was a gift from Jason, it wasn't a burden. It wasn't paying dues in any sense. It was a, it was a gift, which serves to enhance our, our our understanding and our appreciation for the generosity of Jason, his willingness to sacrifice at least materially in this way uh, for the service of the gospel. The text continues, according to Luke, that very night the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue and these Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica for they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, including not a few Greek women and men of high standing. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea as well, they came there too to stir up and incite the crowds. Then the believers immediately sent Paul away to the coast, but Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and they, after receiving instructions to have Silas and Timothy join him as soon as possible, they left him. 
As I said, this is occurring in the context of the second missionary journey. Uh, That map traces Paul's journey beginning in Jerusalem up through to Antioch in Syria and across, you'll notice, through Asia, across to um, uh, the town or the city of Thessalonica, uh, the the major city in that part of the, uh, uh, the world at that time, and then down where he spent a year and a half in Corinth before returning to, uh, to Jerusalem. It was during that year and a half in Corinth, a matter, again, a matter of months arriving in Corinth, having been in Thessalonica, that he turns around and writes these two letters that we know of as First and Second Thessalonians. So let's pick up the narrative in Paul's letter to this church. We also constantly give thanks to God for this, that when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as, human, as a human word, but as what it really is, God's word, which is also at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own compatriots as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God and oppose everyone by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Thus they have constantly been filling up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has overtaken them at last. As for us, brothers and sisters, when for a short time we were made orphans by being separated from you, think of that language, think of what Paul is saying there. Here are people, again, he's barely spent a few months with and he's describing his separation from them and remember the separation was a forced separation, fleeing persecution, fleeing for their lives. I feel like I've been orphaned. That's a strong expression of the pain that he feels in being separated from these brethren. These brethren that he's only known for a few months. How can that be? I've puzzled over this. A few months, how deep and strong a relationship can be built in a few months, even though they shared much by way of the persecution from the Jews and, and, and from their own uh, Gentile compatriots. But even so, with such a, such a deep common history for such a short period of time. Well, I think it's this. The truth of the gospel was so important to Paul. The centre of life for Paul, the meaning of all life for Paul, as he gave himself in service to God, as, 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 as Jesus' as apostle to the Gentiles, gave up all of that prestige that was his as a Jew brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, as a Roman citizen born in the city of Tarsus, all of these things combined to make him entitled, if you will, to great privilege in that world at that time. 
both among the Jews and among the Gentiles, and yet he gave it all away in service to Jesus Christ. And the church at Thessalonica, the baby church, infants in their faith, embraced that same truth that Paul was so passionate about, embraced it amidst persecution. Just as Paul gave up all for the gospel, so too, it seems, did this church. It's that common love of God and his son and the truth, the truth of the gospel, I think, that led Paul to see these brethren as so precious and the connection that he felt with them so strong that he would describe having been separated, forced apart from them. Contrary to his intentions, contrary to his will, he would have liked to spend more time with them to ground them more firmly in the faith. But he was forced away and he describes that as being orphaned, as a child torn away from his parents. That's going to set the stage for our lesson this morning. Verse 19, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Yes, you are our glory and joy, says Paul to the church at Thessalonica. How precious, how important were these brethren to him? Because I would suggest above all of their commitment they'd shown, the commitment to the truth, whatever the cost, whatever the cost. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we decided to be left alone in Athens and we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker for God in proclaiming the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you for the sake of your faith. If I can't be there with you, I did everything that I could to make provision through the person of Timothy to be sure that he's there for you, supporting you, encouraging you, growing you. So that no one would be shaken by these persecutions. Indeed, you yourselves know that this is what we are destined for. In fact, when we were with you, we told you beforehand that we were to suffer persecution. And so it turned out, as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labour had been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. He has told us also that you always remember us kindly and long to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, during all our distress and persecution, we have been encouraged about you through your faith. For we now live if you continue to stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith. And of course Paul did get to visit again with the church of Thessalonica during what we call the the third missionary journey. 
destined for trials and persecution, says Paul. And this was the early church's experience. And Thessalonica was like a, a, a case study, if you will, of this very issue. Destined for trials and persecution. The early church experienced that in a socio-religious sense. Opposition from the Jews, the unbelieving Jews. Opposition from the Greco-Roman culture, whether that be in the form of uh, idolatry and all of the, all of the, the personal investment that the Gentile world had built around idolatry. The, the prosperous industry of making idols, for example. The gospel was a threat to all of these things, family and commerce. On all of these social levels, socio-religious levels, the early church, those early Christians, held on to their faith in spite of these things. And of course, socio-political issues, a jealous Caesar. The Roman Empire was still, as empire, was still pretty new in these days. I mean, the first emperor, Augustus, really, he only began reigning off the top of my head somewhere around 30 BC. The whole thing of Caesar, Emperor Caesar, is relatively new and they were jealous of their power. They were hungry for more power and jealous to hold on to their power and they weren't going to tolerate any threat, any competition whatsoever. That was Paul's undoing in Thessalonica. That was the leverage that the Jews used to get the Gentiles to turn against the church. They're proclaiming that this Jesus fellow is a king. We know, says the Jews, hypocrites, that there's only one king and that's Caesar. They played the political game pretty well. And it nearly cost on more than one occasion the likes of the Apostle Paul his life. But here is the early church living under the constant threat, under the shadow of Caesar. And the threat to be seen, need to be seen to, to be offering their loyalty to Caesar. Government sanctioned violence. This wasn't just a, a veiled threat. This was, this was violence. And the first 200 years, 300 years of the history of the church until, until about 300 AD, 304, I think it was, the, the Edict of Milan, when, when um, uh, the church was declared to be a legal religion and so tolerated in Roman Empire. Up until that point in time, it was a criminal offence. It was an illegal activity to be a Christian. It costs something to be a Christian. At the very least, it costs you of your prospects commercially. It costs you at a family relationship level where, where parents were alienated from children, siblings alienated from one another. And sometimes when the Roman government chose to enforce those laws, it cost an awful lot of Christians their very lives. Sometimes in the most violent, atrocious manner. 
Paul wasn't kidding when he said the church is destined for trials and persecution. And the church in the first century, the first few centuries, knew well what that experience was like. Now, I'm going to take you on a tangent. I want you to consider love. I mean, this seems like a radical tangent. might be a welcome relief. Because <laughs> it's a bit tense when you think about the experience of the early church. But I want to use this as an avenue to explain that we are still subject, no less than the church in the first century, to trials and even persecution. Although it takes a different form, it is no less as large a challenge to our faith today than it was almost 2,000 years ago. Love, a good, well-known Christian word, Christian concept. And we know that love in English really can be nuanced in terms of three useful little Greek terms, agape, which is hands down the most uh, common Greek word in our New Testaments that, uh, that are translated love. Love God and so love like God. A God-focused love, unconditionally willing and doing what is in the best interests of the other. But love also has this nuance, phileo, love of neighbour. It's a mutual love. You see, agape is one way. Agape is unconditional. So if you were to to think of it as a, a diagram, it would be an arrow pointing away from self. I serve you, I honour you, I love you, regardless of what I get in return. That's the, that's the kind of love that, 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 that Jesus commands his disciples to love even your enemies. It's unconditional. For your part, you choose to love. Phileo has that mutual Character. It's like love between friends or family members. And there's an element of, of that, that quid pro quo, that, that you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's very easy to be nice to people that are nice to us. And we experience that in our, I hope we experience that in our relationships with family, with friends, etc. It's a, it's a good thing. It can be corrupted, but in and of itself it is a good thing, a good character of love. And then again, there's eros, which I think is probably the most misunderstood, particularly in our era today. Eros, passion, passion. In and of itself, eros is a good thing. God is a passionate God. God wants his people to be passionate people. Now, we all know it can be corrupted, as it often is in our world, so much so that eros has become almost exclusively associated with sexual immorality, erotica, etc. But the concept of love as eros is is itself a good thing when it's not corrupted, when it's not misdirected. And so the idea of a healthy self-respect If you were going to illustrate uh, Eros, you would have an arrow pointing towards yourself. It it is about me. Not in a selfish, inappropriate way, though it can become that way, it can be corrupted in that direction, but rather rather as a a healthy self-image, as a creature made in the image of God. 
therein lies my value, my importance. But I do have value. I am important for that very reason. And I want to suggest to you, I want to remind you that all three of these elements that we so often might lose in our simple English term love, all three biblically belong together. When we talk about the love of God, we're talking about a God who is selfless, even to the point of being sacrificial. We're talking though about a God who is, who is phileo, who is mutual, and think of God as, as a covenant keeper, faithful God. That's this mutuality concept. And a passionate God. Who could look at the creation and not see the wonder of the beauty to recognise that God is an artist who delights in his creativity? Well, that sets the stage for where I want to spend a little bit of time with us this morning. Understanding our world and why we don't fit in anymore. It's pretty simple for the church in the first century to understand that. We're treading on the toes of the Jews, we're treading on the toes of the Gentiles and so why would we be surprised that we're going to get persecuted as a result? But what about us today? What about us today? I want to give you a quick history lesson and, and I'm, I'm, I'm using a framework from a scholar named Miroslav Volf um, and uh, that's neither here nor there but I want to give him credit for this, uh, um, uh, this, this framework, if you will. Quick history lesson. I mentioned before the Edict of Milan. When was it? Oh, 313, sorry. I think I said 304 before. 313 AD. What's that? 200, 250-odd years after the likes of Paul is running around the Roman Empire establishing churches. You had Constantine's Edict of Milan, which was a, which is, which was a, a declaration of, of tolerance towards Christianity. Christianity can be accepted on the basis of any and every other religion as it's accepted in, in Rome. What that did for the church was it put an end to the persecution, in other words. Christianity is no longer an illegal religion. Christianity is no longer an illegal activity. And from that point on, as a matter of history, the church effectively became the dominant cultural influence in what we would think of as the Western world, Western civilization, even down to our experience today in the West, places like the United States and Australia and the UK, etc. So, God, neighbour, and self. You recognise those. I mean, uh, remember Jesus was asked by that lawyer, uh, what's the greatest command? Love God, love your neighbour. Love your neighbour as yourself. So God, love of God, love of neighbour, love of self. Agape, phileo and eros. Love in the fullest sense of the word. That reigned and blossomed under the influence of Christianity. I'm not naive enough to say there's no exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, that was the typical characteristic of our society, our world. But then, God is marginalised. Not eliminated yet, but marginalised so as to effectively become irrelevant. 
the 18th century, that's the 1700s, the 18th century enlightenment and the movement towards what you'd call Christian deism, away from Christian theism where theism God is central. Deism is the idea that, you know what, um, the world is like a giant clock and God was the clock maker and God made the clock and he wound it up with all of its functions that are integral to its operations, all the laws of nature as we would know them, etc. But then God walked away. So he's the creator, but he's no longer involved with or, or concerned about the creation. And with that mindset, the shift might be expressed as dropping off God, retaining, though, love of neighbour and love of self. There was still enough motivation, enough momentum from the influence of Christianity and theism, Christian theism, to maintain the recognition that we, 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 we owe one another as neighbours. We have to care about one another. Because above all, that, what's in your interest ultimately is in my interest. And so we've got this contracting of love from agape, phileo and eros to just phileo and eros. But then finally, in our experience today, neighbour has been dropped off as well. And all that's left is self. 20th century post-Christian, what I describe as practical atheism. And I don't just mean um, the likes of uh, um, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins and, and the movement that he's tried to generate, the idea of, uh, what's it called, um, uh, the new atheism or something. I'm not just talking about that. That's, a, that's, a, that's an expression of it, perhaps an extreme expression of it. But my language of practical atheism is very deliberate because that includes a lot of religious people. We claim to be religious, we think of ourselves as being religious, but in practice we live as if there is no God. Eros, love of self, which when divorced from agape and phileo tends to become simply a pragmatic, self-centred consumerism and in its extreme narcissism. Pragmatic means the idea of whatever works, man. Whatever works. And that's where we're at. Whatever works, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, whatever works is okay. It's okay. And you need to, you need to embrace that because you need to be true to yourself. So, I hope we're beginning to get the picture of why we don't fit anymore. Because the church... The church that's committed to God and his son Jesus Christ and the scriptures as the inspired word of God and the teaching and practices established by the apostles. Can you begin to see why we're so countercultural? Why we're so weird? Why we're so out of sync with the world? Now, what flows from this? Well, the self. 20th century post-Christian practical atheism, which is essentially a return to the pre-Christian world of paganism and idolatry, characterised largely by violence, the idea that success goes to the strongest person or tribe at the expense of the others. Might makes right. Since the, the late 1800s, that's pretty much been the thing. 
Might makes right. Materialism. That is, as it was expressed in the pre-Christian era through idolatry, the gods serve my needs and my prosperity. It was all about me. People smugly say today, you know, those, those ancients were so ignorant. It's no different today. You might not play the game of making an idol image and bowing down to it with the expectation of whatever it's going to give you in return. Worship the god of Baal who is a storm god and he'll send the rains to give you to water your crops so you, you have plenty to eat in your belly plus you have a surplus to make money on. But the central focus is exactly the same. The central focus being my interests. What's in it for me? And of course sexual immorality, the God's sanctioned and facilitated the gratification of my physical desires. We pushed off. We've outgrown idols. But what the idols used to serve is still there. The gratification of our physical desires, etc. I mean, in the modern West, that is what, that is central. That is what makes the world go round. Even so much so today, your identity is pretty much defined by your sexuality. And so I, I want to just run through this little sample, to, I guess, to highlight the process, the transition as it's unfolded in the last 100, 150 years. Just one among many examples that could be given. In this post-Christian social climate, our culture has marginalised relationships reflecting God's order of creation. That is a male husband and a female wife procreating, resulting in children. And that's all built upon the Genesis text. God's intention in in the beginning. You remember the making of, of, of Adam and then Eve and then the creation mandate, among other things, go go into the creation, subdue the creation, multiply, flourish. That's the foundation. At least coming off the back of a Christian worldview, that was the building block of society. But we've gone through a process of gender neutrality what I've described as radical feminism. And can I hasten to add, feminism as a social justice movement, when it was conceived in the mid-1800s, for example, largely around the issue of suffrage, the right of women to vote, and then later in more contemporary times, the, the, the right of women to have equal pay for equal work, those are valid, those are Christian values. That's a good Christian cause. So in that sense, I would argue I'm a feminist, if that's what we mean by feminism. But today, feminism largely means something very different. Feminism today, what I label here as radical feminism, it's like the good movement has been hijacked, as sin often does with good things. Gender, roles of men and women, it's all social construct There's no substance or reality in it and we need to discard that in the name of equality, which really equality meaning sameness. And so that's what I mean by genuine neutrality. 
Our society has for many, many decades been hammered with this idea of gender difference, differences of roles based upon gender is just a social construct and so we can, we can reconstruct it any way that we, that we like. Here's the rub though, that's led to gender confusion. If there's no difference in gender, then what does it matter whether we talk about boys and girls or boys and boys and girls and girls? What does it matter? So the whole idea of gender is, is confused and mixed up. LGBTQ movement, same-sex marriage, which of course logically leads to what we're wrestling with right now, gender fluidity. And that is you can be whatever you choose to be on any given day, the ultimate exercise of one's personal rights and freedoms. We're right back to Genesis 3. You can be like God. You can determine what's right and wrong for yourself, man. We are right back there. Aren't we modern? Aren't we progressive? All of which is the logical consequence of a progressive march away from God. And I'm going to have to be very quick in making these applications. Destined for trials and persecution in the contemporary church, our experience today, externally, Postmodernism, um, the current uh, philosophical dominant thought, uh, at least in academia, which of course has filtered down over the last, say, 50 years to become the popular worldview in the West. Contrary to modernism, says postmodernism, truth can often be interpreted in many ways. And that's true. That's true. Truth, at least some truths, can often be interpreted in different ways. My existence here, my understanding is I'm the product of my mum and dad coming together. But somebody could say, no, 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 you're the product of a Martian. and You're a a science experiment of of people on Mars. Well, okay, I guess that's possible. Not likely though. Which brings us to the point, while many truths can be interpreted in many different ways. That doesn't mean, as postmodernism assumes, therefore all truth is relative. That is, there is no such thing as objective or universal truth, which is the basic premise of postmodernism. No, that's, well, rationally it's it's a contradiction because it's saying there's there's nothing absolute and that's an absolute. (laughs) But it's not true. It's simply not true. Contrary to postmodernism, not all conceivable interpretations are equally feasible or valid. Just because I can come up with an alternative scenario doesn't mean that that's the truth or that it bumps off the most likely truth or explanation. All it shows is I've got a good imagination and I can make stuff up. But somehow our society has become enamoured with that. I suspect because it's a pretty good tool for making truth what you want it to be. Now that's something else, isn't it? Truth is whatever I want it to be. It assumes the dominant culture is always oppressive. Again, this is characteristic of postmodernism. That is how they came to be dominant in the first place is that they're oppressors. And so we need to push back on the status quo. We need to push back on the... um, uh, the established culture, uh, and the idea is that um, they're probably the, the enemy that needs to be overthrown themselves. 
political correctness, identity politics, typical of the sort of mechanisms that are used to, to, to achieve that, that end. The helpful corrective to modernism's excessive focus on individualism turns out to be no less focused on the self. It's just that greater value is placed upon others, my tribe, because of their usefulness and relevance to me. Internally, for the church, they're the external influences. So what's the result of that upon us? Well, we've still got this truth is relative thing that seems to filter down and sink into our consciousness. And I think it's expressed in the church's shift from God so loved the world. It was a time when, when the church, and I'm talking here the church very broadly, believers throughout the world. If you were to ask them, what's, what's the first text that comes to your mind out of the Bible? Oh, John 3.16. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only one. Everyone knows that. Well, yeah, everyone knew that until about, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago when it started to be shifted towards, do not judge. But the Bible said, don't judge. You know what I'm talking about? That's become the favourite passage of most believers today. And I want to suggest to you it's precisely and directly a result of the influence of postmodern thinking. Because truth is relative. Who are you to judge? And from a Christian point of view, that's been fatal. It's been fatal to an allegiance to the truth of scripture. It's been fatal to, to evangelism. Where's the motive to evangelise if I can't be sure at the end of the day what truth is? Where's the motivation to evangelise? Who am I to impose my view upon them? It's significant. It's important for us to recognise the temptation to be popular and accepted. The temptation to pursue consumerism ourselves, to buy into that fundamental appetite of our society. My perceived needs and wants at the expense of being loyal to God's truth and will revealed in scripture. The first question, and notice I've got that in capitals and I've got it underlined, so I'm trying to give it absolute emphasis there. The first question one should ask in choosing a church is do they teach and practice what Jesus' apostles taught and practiced as revealed in Scripture? That ought to be the first question. It's not a postmodern question. It's a Christian question. <laughs> Does this community of faith, are they built upon the teachings and the practices of the apostles? That's the first question. And then we can start asking questions of, well, what's their kindergarten like or what's, what's, what's their old people's group like and all those sorts of stuff, which, which might be legitimate concerns and desires and considerations. But not if they come before the fundamental issue of is truth defined in biblical terms primary here? That's the first question to ask. So, destined for trials and persecution. This is the contemporary church's experience. It was the, the, the same as the early church's experience. And most importantly, it was Jesus' experience. Citing Romans chapter 8 there, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If... If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. That biblical principle of suffering before glory. 
We mightn't like it. In fact, in our society today, we do everything we can to, to avoid suffering. It's a reality of life and it is a fundamental spiritual principle. Suffering before glory. That's the example of Jesus. The gospel, Jesus' death, burial and resurrection. But the death and burial and all the suffering that that entailed went before, necessarily before the resurrection to glory. That's the pattern that we as Jesus' disciples are called to follow, to imitate. Labour pains come before birth. This is the Christian's present condition in relation to the hope for which we wait. And can I illustrate it this way? Jesus left the glory that was his in the heavenlies. And he humbled himself to become a servant, to become a human being. And in that process suffered even to the point of death on a cross. But that death was followed by his resurrection and his ascension to reign in the heavenlies where he continues to this day. But you see, we that are here now as disciples of Christ, as followers of Christ, we are living out his experience which includes suffering. Not the sort of suffering, at least at this point in time, maybe another decade or two, another generation or two, who knows. But right now, it's pretty much about suffering ridicule and being marginalised and being disadvantaged. At this point, though, we share in the suffering of Christ, which was the experience of the church from the first century right through to the present. Why would that surprise us? Why would that surprise us? But here it is, we have the promise of Jesus' return. Where we will be raised and we will reign in glory with him according to his, to his promises. The question is, do we get it? Do we get the gospel? And I want to conclude with this song. You can stand if you like. You probably feel like I could do with a bit of a stretch. Let's stand as we finish. Galatians 2.20. Because that really is the point of the lesson. And the question is, as we can say these words, as we can sing these words, do we really get it to the point of where we are willing to live these words? I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. The church at Thessalonica was a church that got the gospel, expressing their willingness to be faithful even when it meant they were persecuted, marginalised, hated. But that's what God's people are called to and that's what we're called to today. Please, please be seated.